92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. With this show, I'm hoping to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with a partner or two. Uh, It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really my uh, top priority is to put out something that's good for novices and those who have struggled with the scriptures in the past. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. With the radio show, we're starting with the book of Revelation, which is a challenging book, but a great book, understandable and applicable. So my goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. On last week's show, uh, we Uh, did an introduction to Revelation 2 and 3. That's the section with the seven uh, letters to the seven churches and spoke uh, especially about the elements of the letters and the pattern that the letters tend to follow, Uh, the exceptions, uh, the reason for the pattern, the elements of the pattern, and so on. And we also covered the church at Smyrna, which is actually the second church on persecution, And that tied in nicely to our discussion of the overcomers. This week, we're going to talk about uh, the church at Ephesus, and then I think time will permit to uh, allow me to talk about the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira. But uh, Ephesus is one of my favorites, so we'll see how long that goes. So, uh, Lord, we uh, pray for our time together today. I pray that you would give me words to say. pray that people would have ears to hear. Thank you for the beautiful and wonderful book of Revelation. Uh, Pray that you'd open it up to us through your spirit. And we look forward to what you have for us today and always in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the, the Pure Radio Network and this show. We will take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 2 today, starting with the church in Ephesus. So I'll read uh, that letter, the seven verses that start chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A little bit of background on Ephesus. It was the province of Asia's greatest harbor and city. It was called the Light of Asia. And it gets relatively rich coverage in Scripture. Uh, Acts 19, 
and 20 in particular. Uh, Acts 19 talks about the formation of the church at Ephesus and opposition from the artisans at the temple of Artemis or Diana, which was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, and it was uh, quite the sight. It was, uh, had 120 columns that were 60 feet high. Uh, and it was a, a huge, impressive building. Paul stayed here for two and a half years, longer than any other place in his ministry. And he was very close to the church's elders. You can see that uh, at the uh, end of Acts 20 in his closing remarks uh, and all the mutual crying that happens at the end of that. It's really uh, touching to read that. The city for Paul had strategic importance, and it marks a shift in his ministry approach. Uh, Instead of traveling so much to start churches, he centers there uh, to make disciple-makers and and to train up lay leaders, and this becomes really important to him at Ephesus. He really loved its people, and this leads to a chicken-egg sort of question, right? Did he love the people, and that's why he stayed? Or was it the staying there that helped him love the people so much? Or maybe it was some of each. He uh, wrote Ephesus and First and Second Timothy while in Rome's prison. And uh, Ephesus was a widely circulated and known letter. I love the book of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, but that's obviously a different discussion for a different day. Uh, Timothy was its first bishop. We're told that in First Timothy 1.3. Tradition says that John replaced him. And it was home to Priscilla Uh, Aquila and Apollos, and we're told that in Acts 18. So it was a respected church with a rich history, and we really see that in this passage as well. Let's start with verse 7 at the end, actually two reminders from what we talked about before. Notice that verse 7 mentions that this is said to the churches, plural, and as we've talked about in the introduction, this is all churches for all time. So Uh, It's not just for the church at Ephesus, it's first for them, but it's also for us as well. And then the end of verse 7 has the reward to the overcomer, which is a feature of each letter, uh, the right to eat from the tree of life. And if you think about what that is, we think of the tree of life as eternal life, and it could mean that, but again, as we talked about in the last uh, episode of the word diet, that would lead to a works-based salvation, right? That if you overcome, then you get to have eternal life. And that doesn't make sense in light of other scriptures. So uh, as we talked about earlier, the, the better way to take this is that it's figurative for an increased quality of life and eternity. Uh, so again, that's a different discussion uh, as well, uh, the extent of rewards in heaven and so on and so forth. But uh, again, we'd have to cover that a different day. Um, Notice also, though, that uh, the tree of life is actually referred to as an earthly thing as well. There are four citations in Proverbs where the tree of life is a reference to a higher quality of life even on earth. Uh, Proverbs 3.18, 11.30, 13.12, and 15.4. Next, let's look at the uh, commendation to this church, verses 2 and 3. Uh, First thing to notice is that it has seven parts. So that's uh, the number seven continues to pop up in Revelation. And it's in a 3-1-3 pattern in verses 2 and 3. And then there's a little bit more detail given in verse 6. But here in verses 2 and 3, there's uh, three small commendations, a central one, and then three more small ones. So the 3-1-3 pattern is something we want to talk about as well. The first three are mentioned in verse 2, the deeds their good works, uh, their hard work. Uh, the word here is toil. Uh, William Barclay says it's the kind of work which takes everything of mind and body. 
1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul writes, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So hard work from the Ephesians. And then uh, the third one mentioned in verse 2 is their perseverance. In the second set of three, in verse 3, perseverance is repeated. So that's interesting uh, that it uh, brackets the one in the middle, that it's repeated twice. So perseverance is a big deal uh, in this letter. That's uh, a big deal in the Christian faith period. But perseverance is one of the keys that we want to look at going forward. It's not just doing something for the short run. Um, it's the long-run aspects of faith that are really important. And then he ex- uh, expands on that in verse 3 uh, with enduring hardship and having not grown weary in serving God. So that takes us to the commendation in the middle. And often in Scripture, uh, there's a pattern like this where um, it's kind of bookending. You have something on one side, something on the other, and really it's serving to uh, as a literary technique to, to get us to focus on the thing in the middle. The other clue we have that this is key is that it is developed and then repeated and elaborated on in verse 6. And the commendation in the middle is that they were pure in doctrine. They had condemned evil men and false teachers. Now, this is something Jesus had warned about. Matthew 7, 15 talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. And it's something they had been warned about in particular by Paul. When you look at that last uh, talk to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, Paul says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So this is something that's a general concern, and it was a particular concern for Paul. And to their credit, they've been careful there. They're praised here for testing and taking a stand within the church. Uh, It's important to do both, right? Uh, You can test, and then if you don't take a stand on what you find, the bad things you find, then that's not much good at all. So uh, they were able to test, willing to test, willing to take a stand within the church. These are huge, uh, huge things, and Christ commends them for this in verse 2. So let's go to verse 6 then to see the follow-up. In particular there, Uh, Christ points to the practices of the Nicolaitans. And uh, the Greek word here that's relevant is nikeo, which we've already heard in the last few weeks. It means to conquer or to overcome. Same word that we uh, talked about earlier with the overcomer. So, uh, and then nikeo, and then the second part of the word is laos, which means the people or the laity, where we get that word. So, nikeo and laos means to conquer the people, to conquer the laity. And from uh, church history, uh, we're pretty sure that this was a group that was confusing Christian liberty with license. So they were advocating cheap grace, probably connected to a Gnostic belief that the body was evil and therefore that behavior was irrelevant. I've got a nice quote on this. If you're interested, I'll send it to you on Facebook. But uh, Irenaeus talks at great length. But the phrase I want to give you here is that he says they live lives of unrestrained indulgence. And so uh, it seems obvious or clear uh, that that's probably what the Nicolaitans were up to. So we have here the threat of doctrinal and ethical compromise. And as William Barclay says, if their teaching had been successful, the world would have changed Christianity and not Christianity the world. And obviously this is a concern, always a concern, uh, and they're doing a terrific job on this. 
Notice also in verse 6, it says God hated the Nicolaitans' practices. So he doesn't hate them. Uh, he hates their practices. And for us, it's the same tension, right? We don't hate people uh, or judge people, but we do uh, condemn or uh, critique uh, their practices. So there's that always that difference between hating the sin and uh, loving the sinner. So the church was facing dangers from the outside, but in this context, mostly their problems were on the inside, and they're doing a nice job with them, with one clear exception. And that's in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. This is a staggering critique and, and fascinating, right? If you look at what, they, what he had just commended them for, it's a lengthy commendation, so much good, and yet God still faithfully reproves them. I think this is uh, a really important lesson, a general lesson for us, right? That uh, as good as we are, as, as many good things as we do, as far as we come in our walk, right? The standards of sanctification are just staggering. There's always some other place to grow. There's always some way in which we might regress and must, must be careful. We're saved by grace, but God wants and hopes for us uh, that we would um, make progress in the faith. I think you can imagine them hearing this also, right? They, they probably knew, right? they, they surely knew they were doing a nice job of many things. So a lot of times to hear a rebuke when you have been so effective can be so severe and shocking and disheartening. And we have a clue from that in the text. This is the only letter where there's a repeat commendation. Uh, and it happens again in chapter 2, verse 6. And so that's a signal to us that this would have been just shocking, right? Instead of just commendation critique, he com comes back and reassures them with another commendation. I think the other thing to say here is that they hated things. We talked about that in a minute. They hated these false teachers. But verse 4 is, is saying, look, you've forsaken your first love. Christianity is not defined by the things we hate. Primarily, it's defined by the things we love. All right, I have much more to say about uh, this crucial verse, but uh, we need to take a break for now. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of the radio station and its peace in God's kingdom. Spread the word about Pure Radio and this show if you're enjoying them. See you in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the middle of our discussion of the church at Ephesus, uh, Christ's letter to them in Revelation 2. We talked about the uh, sevenfold commendation for the Ephesians in verses 2 and 3, and then the staggering rebuke in verse 4. So what's the big problem? I mean, you know, they're doing all this great stuff, but they've forsaken their first love. It's such a strong critique that they receive a second commendation in verse 6. So what's the big deal? Well, again, the heart of the gospel, the heart of our relationship with God uh, is love. And so they're missing that. So a uh, couple, couple angles here. I mean, they're missing at least one of the, first, the, of the two great commandments, uh, love God, love others. And I think another way to think about this is that even if it's not a problem in the short run or not a particularly large or obvious problem in the short run, it's going to be a problem in the long run. If the things they're commended for in verses 2 and 3 are not driven by love, then that's going to lead to trouble, right? They're not going to be able to persevere. It's going to degenerate into pride. Uh, 
and so love has to be the motor. Love has to be the motive for the things in verses 2 and 3, or it's going to fall apart. So in a nutshell, the Ephesians are quite impressive. Purity of doctrine and life, devoted service, but it's without deep devotion to Christ. There's a forsaken intimacy. They're faithful to the ritual and the service, but there's a hollowness in the relationship that is deeply troubling. We might use phrases like going through the motions. Uh, They have deeds and doctrine without devotion and delight. And as William Barclay puts it, something had got lost in the process. Ray Robbins says they were hating that which Christ hated, but were failing to love those whom Christ loved. They had become so concerned about hating false doctrines, false ideas, false teachings, that they had included the ones who held these in their hatred. This is actually a recurring and important theme in the scriptures. When we look at King David, he's known as a man after God's own heart. That's what sets him apart. It's not his actions. His actions are actually a very mixed bag. But what sets him apart is the the heart, right? And the heart then leads to repentance and confession when he stumbled. And so his love for God, his his heart is what matters. The Old Testament prophets speak at great length about relationship with God and not overemphasizing the rituals and the sacrifices and the fasting. Uh, 1 Samuel 14.34 is my favorite small example of this. Saul's kingship is devolving and that's when he builds his first altar. And so it's, you know, I think the, the scriptures are telling us, look, building altars when your heart's not in the right place is not what God's after. Think about the story of Mary and Martha. Or we'll talk about this later, but think about the second or older son uh, in the, the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son, right? In Luke 15, that he's doing all the right stuff, but there's no love behind it. Or finally, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, classic passage that you can have X, Y, and Z, but if it's without love, what's the point? For this reason, my pastor in Texas called the the church at Ephesus the church of the withering root. And God is more concerned with the root than the fruit, because if the root is messed up, uh, the fruit is going to be false or it's going to fade. And uh, that's not what he wants for us. So it's easy for us to focus on the fruit, and the fruit can be a barometer of what's going on with the root. But ultimately, it's the root that's important, and it's the root that Ephesus is struggling with. Now, by definition, the responsibility is on us. If you look at verse 5, it says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. All right, it's not the circumstances. It's not God. Uh, it's us. Right? We have fallen. We've, we've walked away. We've stumbled. We've uh, degenerated from um, love to just mere actions and service. This is not God's fault. You probably heard the story of the husband and wife at a stoplight sitting in their car, and they're looking at a young couple who uh, are in the car ahead of them. They're seated next to each other, and the wife starts to remember the salad days, you know, when they used to sit so close to each other in the car and um, she says, what happened? And the husband says to her, well, I, I haven't moved. Right Over time, it's the wife who's moved from the middle seat to the passenger seat. Uh, and that's the way we are with God many times. God's still sitting there. He's still driving. Or maybe we've taken over the wheel. But even if God's driving, a lot of times there's a distance in there uh, that, uh, where we've moved away from him, and it's going to cause trouble. So if this is such a serious problem... 
we want to be aware of it. How can we know? What are the signs? What are the causes? So some thoughts here, right? One would be, uh, what are our attitudes and feelings? Do we have a sense of emptiness? Are we doing the right things but with the wrong motives? Do we find ourselves becoming self-righteous or legalistic? Is there an emphasis on the ritual and the practice? Do we say things like, I have to do something in terms of obedience rather than I get to? Do we see things as obligations rather than opportunities? So if we find ourselves more critical, complaining, if we've lost our joy and our zeal, then we can be worried or even confident that we're not in a good place. I've only had one significant spell uh, like this where I felt like I was in this position. I've had a number of smaller spells, but had a longer spell. And I don't remember who recommended it to me, but I ended up reading John Piper's Desiring God. And it's a classic. It's one of those, you know, 25th anniversary edition sort of books. And it is tremendous uh, for this. It helped, it helped recenter me on the things that really matter. And so if you're in that spot, uh, and in fact, the people that listen to a show like this are more likely to be in this spot, right? You're, you know, you're listening to a serious Bible study on the radio, wanting to learn more about God's Word, and that's that's great. But uh, you're also more prone to the the trouble that the Ephesians are into. So maybe Desiring God by John Piper would be uh, a resource for you. Maybe it's a matter of beliefs or even in doctrine, right? That. Uh, If we believe that we have to earn God's love, certainly for our justification, right, we would reject that as works-based salvation, and that's ridiculous, doesn't make any sense. But we start to maybe believe it in our sanctification, right, that we would never think we could earn salvation, but maybe we think that, uh, you know, to earn God's approval or that God loves us less if we don't uh, do certain things. And uh, sometimes that belief system uh, can get in the way. Uh, he doesn't like the things we do sometimes, right? The sins we commit, the, the harm we do to ourselves and others, but he still loves us. And so we can't earn that. Uh, we couldn't earn it before we became a child of God, and we can't earn it as a child of God. So maybe our belief structure is messed up. Uh, sometimes we can look at our focus, right? Where our time, talent, and treasure is going. Are we too busy with life or w- with religion? And if that's the case, maybe it's time for less activity and more intimacy, less focus on doing, and more focus on just being, uh, being still and knowing that he is God. So the emphasis should be on relationship over obedience, internals over externals, opportunities over duties. And so what's our focus? What's our mindset? What's our, uh, how busy are we with life and with religious activity? So let's look back at verse 5, because that's where the exhortation is from Christ, right? How to deal with this sin, this problem, this thing that's keeping them distanced from God and can cause such long-run damage. The exhortation in verse 5 is to remember, to repent, and to return. And if not, their light would be extinguished. You know, if you look at the church of Ephesus, there were four great pillars with a cross on top at the entrance of the city's harbor. Uh, One was for each gospel writer. But after the 5th century, the city and the church had declined. And by the 14th century, it was uninhabited. It had been sacked by the Turks in 1304. And so, at least long term, that light was extinguished. Um, 
they were not ultimately able to get around this apparently. And so this is uh, fulfilled. Uh, so the three verbs here, remember, repent, return. Remember is the catalyst, right? What will get you to repent or return? You have to recognize there's a problem, and that means remembering. You need to know, remember, that there is a more desirable state. There is a better place to be. It's kind of funny, too, that this is a backhanded compliment, right? That they used to be there. They were capable of that. They were in that place. And so it's a reminder to go back to the the better place that they used to be in. Now, what are they supposed to remember? Well, God's love and his grace, that they find joy and gratitude rather than the distractions of obedience and doctrinal conformity and the like. So another exercise here is is the importance of of comparing ourselves today to the old days. Are we still growing uh, in terms of peace, strength, joy, purity, Right, all the things that, that matter in the Christian life, are we growing or not? If we're stagnating, uh, if we're regressing, right? It's, it, so it's important to take account once in a while to see where we're coming from. Now, part of that can be talking to people close to us. Uh, if we don't have close relationships, that's a different problem. Uh, you're probably not doing as well as you think you are in, in, in the Church of Ephesus terms if you don't have close relationships. But asking those close relations uh, how we're doing. Uh, journaling can be effective here. And then just certainly prayer and being quiet, practicing solitude and silence, letting the Spirit speak to you on these matters. For some people, they maybe never had this, right? That they never had joy and gratitude. And so that's a tougher call. Uh, but if you've had it, then it should be easier to remember it uh, and to, to go back to that thing, to that place, that state. The second verb here is repent. Repentance is required. It's not enough to remember. It's not enough to say it, right? You have to actually make the change. Uh, The term here for repent is metanoia, and it's the same term used for Christians and non-Christians, right? Non-Christians repent unto salvation, but Christians repent in cases like this to get back on track. Now, what are they repenting of? Again, you could picture them saying, we're doing everything right, right, you're doing the right things, but what about the attitudes and the motives? What's the heart behind those things? It's not just what we're doing or not doing, it's how it's done, and it's the motive from which it's done, the attitudes in which it's done. And so repentance is more than simple acts or sins of commission. So remembering is a prerequisite, but repentance and accepting responsibility doesn't always follow. People will remember, but they won't take the steps, right? Why not? They're indifferent, it's too difficult. They'll blame circumstances or other people. Uh, they'll be fatalistic about it. So just remembering is not enough. You've got to repent as well. And then what do you repent to? Well, you return, right? The third verb, to pursue the deep love of Christ over all else. Matthew Henry says, they must, as it were, begin again, go back step by step till they come to the place where they lo- took the first false step. Return back the way that you came. Uh, We'll talk about marriages later in the program, but obvious applications here, right? If there's a struggling marriage, what do you do? You go back to the beginning. You go back to first steps, uh, at least to consider where you were and where you could go back to. Uh, Verse 5 also says, do the things you did at first, right? Uh, And so again, it's not just a feeling. Go back to doing the things you did at first, right? Do Do those things and do them the way that you said them the way that you uh, did them in the past.
even though Ephesus is more like the older son in Luke 15, it's interesting that all three of these steps are in the story for the younger son. Luke, Luke 15, 17 through 20 says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants of food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, right? He remembers, he repents, and then he returns. And so whether you're the, uh, the prodigal son that's gone away or the prodigal son that maybe never got it in terms of God's love, the call is the same, to remember, to repent, and to return to a God who loves you and wants the best for you, right? Who loved you by his grace, not anything that you deserved. So we're going to take a break and we'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 Partner. P3 Partners are pure radio listeners who pray for pure radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, promote pure radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 Partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 Partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're talking about Revelation 2, 1 through 7, Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus. And the last thing to talk about uh, in the passage is verse 1. So this is how Christ self-identifies for this particular church. We had talked about in chapter 1 that there's the wonderful picture of Christ and that in each letter uh, Christ gives and John records just a few aspects of that wonderful description. So why are particular... Uh, descriptions used for different churches, right? The two that are here in verse 1 are Christ as the one who holds the seven stars, and chapter 1 tells us those are the ministers and elders, the messengers, in his right hand. And the second is he walks among the seven gold lampstands, which we were told are the churches. So the holding the seven stars is a picture of, of Christ's support, control, care, and protection. They're instruments of his hand. It's also a picture of his sovereignty. So he's in control, not them, him. And second, it's he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, a picture of the intimacy that he has. They've fallen away, and yet he's still walking among them. He's watching carefully. He wants intimate relationship. It's like Genesis 2, where he's walking in the garden. And it's an exhortation to the pastors to do the same thing. So again, I think this is appropriate, totally appropriate for their problem. Their problem is they're not thinking of God as sovereign. They're thinking of themselves as sovereign. And they're missing relationship and intimacy with God. So now I want to spend time on applications of this passage. This is a terrific passage in any case. But then on top of that, it has a number of tremendous applications to the Christian life. And I've got a list of seven here. How about that? Uh, appropriate for the book of Revelation. And I want to develop those applications um, in, in the time that we have remaining. The first is that this is a great passage for marriage. I've already alluded to this, but uh, 
you might think about a, a marriage that looks like the Ephesians church, right? That they're doing the right stuff. They have all the externals, but the love is fading or maybe the love is missing. They had it, but they lost it. Verse five says they had it at first, right? And so marriages have it at first, but sometimes they lose it. Uh, in in uh, psychology, sometimes they'll call this functional versus relational marriages, right? Marriages as a function, they're doing the right stuff. It functions as a marriage, but it's functional more than it's relational. Uh, we might think of it as responsibility without intimacy. Uh, maybe there's no sleeping around, right? That would be unacceptable, but there's not much love there either. People are going to persevere, or at least they think they're going to. I'm not going to get a divorce, but is there a deep relationship? Christ wants so much more from us than just a functional uh, marriage, more than just staying out of trouble and sleeping around, more than just grunting our way through it. Again, overcoming is not surviving, it's thriving. And so we're not supposed to survive our marriage, we're supposed to thrive in it. We're not supposed to just do marriage as an office or a means to raise kids or look good with our middle-class values, right? Uh, it's meant to be so much more than that. I mentioned the John Piper book, Desiring God, and I would definitely recommend that for you. But he's got a hilarious uh, discussion on page 27. He's got a long love poem that he wrote to his wife, Noel on their 25th anniversary. So I want to read a, a significant chunk of this to you. He says, I say, suppose it is today, our anniversary, let's say, the 25th, and I go down to some small florist in our town and buy a rose for every year that we've been married, then appear at our front door and ring the bell. And then you picture that Noel swings wide the door and hears me say, as I hold out the rose display, a happy anniversary, Noel. And she responds for me, oh, these are beautiful, but why so much? To which I then reply, while holding up my hand, You know, it is my duty that I go, each year and buy what husbands ought to buy. I think I was well taught that there are proper ways to do these things, and I just wanted you to know that I am duty-bound and that my character is sound. What's wrong with duty? And of course, that's hilarious because that's a horrible idea, right? To give your wife 25 roses, that's great. Uh, on a 25th anniversary, it's a nice touch, but to see it and then to sell it as duty, as obligation, it, it just sucks the love right out of it, right? Uh, that's not the proper way to look at it. No one's really going to feel loved if that's um, what's spoken as the motivation, but even if that is the unspoken motivation, it's not going to feel like love like it would if it's actually coming from the heart, so what, how does the passage help us with this? Well, I think it tells us what the standard is. The standard is not simply the seven points of commendation from verses 2 and 3. It's that you've got to get verse 4 correct. You've got to remember the first love. And if you're struggling with that, then the recipe is in verse 5. Remember, repent, and return. And that's true of your marriage as well. And again, it helps to keep verse 1 in mind. God is sovereign. And God wants intimacy with us, right? And so it's not uh, ultimately about uh, obedience to Christ as much as, as it starts with relationship with Christ and then obedience follows. So wherever you're at in your marriage, right, if you've got things cooking along nicely, right, the motives are right, the actions are right, then keep it up, nurture that, right? If, you, if you're struggling or fading a bit, right, uh, then heed the call to the church at Ephesus, 
right? Take the time to reflect on that, to remember to repent and return. And then for some of us, it's just even knowing what the goal is, you know, that our understanding of marriage has been um, withered, uh, that it's just a, a low view of what marriage is. So it can be a difficult but uh, hopeful teaching, and I uh, just want to encourage you to uh, do what you can in your marriages, to strive for the glorious marriages that Christ wants for you. Beyond that, uh, maybe some of you need to seek out help, right, from an elder or a pastor. Uh, if you feel like maybe you're the, uh, the, the key culprit, and uh, hopefully you, you see that, you look in the mirror and take responsibility, you know, uh, someone who helps you hold you accountable, uh, write some things down. Are you improving? Uh, get someone who can ask you some tough questions. Uh, it can be a tough path to return, but the, the, this gives us the key uh, features of what that returning would look like. So strive for great marriages. Uh, go back to what you had before. Remember, repent, return. Focus on who Christ is, what he wants for your marriage, and then get help as useful. The second application I want to make here is to longtime believers. Right? So many of the people listening to this show have been Christians for a long time, right? And uh, that's great. That's wonderful. Uh, but if you've been a Christian a long time, a couple of things happen here, right? You likely became Christ, uh, Christian at an earlier age. And for many of those people, uh, maybe they never really had a uh, prodigal son phase, right? Or they just kind of drifted into the right stuff. Maybe it's your genetics and environment or whatever. Maybe you just by grace ended up on that path. But it's also then easier to take it for granted. Even for people who had a rougher past, uh, a lot of times it's still easy to take um, that grace for granted, that you just settle into different routines. It's so easy for... um, belief and intimacy to degenerate in the church into uh, a set of checking the boxes, right? Just by our nature, we tend to want to measure things, and the things that are measurable are often only shadows or types of the real thing. How many Bible studies have you gone to? How often do you go to church? Uh, Even how many people you help, right? How many things you're doing? All these are wonderful, right? Verses 2 and 3 point to the value of these good deeds, but ultimately you've got to keep it rooted in that that first love. And if we forsake that first love, uh, then the things we're doing will not be as effective. And second, ultimately they're going to fade. That's the nature of these things. When the root is withering, when the root is fading, it has to have implications for the fruit. And so if you're a longtime believer, this is a great opportunity to reconsider where are you at, right? Again, catch the vision for what Christ wants for you. And then if there's, um, if you're not where you need to be, if you're practicing solitude and silence and, and God convicts you of this, then you've got to remember, repent, and return. Remember that God's sovereign. God doesn't need you. Uh, he wants you to do things on earth, but he doesn't need you. He is in control, and he wants intimacy with you, right? He's walking among the seven lampstands, and that includes relationship with you. So focus on the intimacy that Christ wants for you. Remember that he's sovereign. A lot of times I get myself where I'm too busy. I'm asked to do a lot of things, and uh, I have to remember that I'm finite, as silly as that sounds. 
And there's only so many things I can do. I'm not meant to do everything. I'm meant to do just the things God has put in front of me. So God is sovereign, not me. And God wants relationship. Um, and then that leads to obedience rather than uh, focusing solely on obedience. So if you're a longtime believer, uh, consider the wisdom uh, of the commendation and the rebuke for the church at Ephesus. Another responsibility that the longer-term believers have is that typically they're in formal or at least informal leadership, right? They're passing on values and practices to others in the church. And so uh, they need to consider, we need to consider, what are we passing along? What impressions are we passing along? Do we give the impression that it's about obedience first and foremost? Do we give the impression that your standing with God is based on how many Bible studies you go to. Uh, So we have to be careful, I think, to lead ourselves, but then be careful in how we lead others. And again, whether you're in formal or informal leadership, uh, those who have been in the faith longer have a responsibility to make sure that they're communicating the faith ably, right? Not just doing it, but communicating it, not just what they're doing, but how it's perceived and to be careful of that and how people watch them. All right, we're going to take a break now before we come back with the last five applications from the church at Ephesus. Uh, If you're on Facebook, uh, like Pure Radio and friend me if you would. Uh, We'll post the podcast on Facebook and SoundCloud for uh, previous shows. You can find them there under the Word Diet. And then feel free to interact with me on my Facebook uh, when the program's uh, posted there with your questions or comments, or, or just send me a private message. I'd be happy to Uh, talk with you through that medium. We'll be back in a minute. Tune to us for the pure gospel on the radio. Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We've been talking today about the church at Ephesus, uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, Christ's letter to that church. And it's noted for its sevenfold commendation of the church. They were doing a lot of wonderful things, but then in verse 4, they had forgotten their first love. The prescription in verse 5 is to remember, repent, and return. And we've been talking, and we'll continue to talk in this last segment, about applications to this. Uh, Before the break, I talked about applications to marriage and those who are longtime believers. The third application here is to talk about Christian parents and second-generation believers. It's all too common in our day and in the biblical record that you'll see a high level of faith in one generation followed by something not quite as impressive in the second generation. And it's frustrating, right? I mean, when, you, when you see this, um, good parents, uh, people doing, seeming to do the right stuff. But the biblical record is that this is really difficult to do. If you look at uh, Judges 2 after Joshua and that generation fades, Uh, the next generation not so sharp. You see it in the book of Kings when fathers and sons go back and forth in the southern kingdom. It's just hard to get two really strong generations in a row. Look at the sons of David, Eli, and Samuel. uh, Just a mess um, compared to their their fathers. So very difficult to do. Even in the book of Ephesians, we see an example of this. 35 years earlier, Paul had written to this same church Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
And so the church at Ephesus, you can see, is really strong. But in this next generation, 35 years later, things have faded a bit. And it's just really difficult to pass that fervent faith on to the next generation. Now, it's fairly easy to get behavioral uh, conformity. It's fairly easy to pass on a form of, say, cultural Christianity, which has the trappings but fails to hold the heart. Uh, you might consider it passing along a heritage rather than a heart. Uh, but it's difficult to do this, right? The, the Christianity is not simply about obedience, not simply about conformity to cultural, uh, even Christian cultural norms. There's much more to it, and it's just difficult. Josh McDowell said rules without relationship leads to rebellion. And so uh, we have to be really careful to do the best we can as parents to pass along a, a, a real faith, right? Not just uh, conformity to obedience. Uh, so I found this to be a particular challenge uh, for for my wife and I. This is very difficult to do. Uh, we've wrestled with it and uh, still not sure we're doing a great job with it. But uh, I think it's one of those things we're asking uh, the right questions is at least half the answer. I know what we want to achieve. I know uh, we're, we're aware of the issue, but it's just, it is difficult. And so I just want to encourage you to to double check as parents, what, what are you passing along? How are you passing it along? How is it perceived by your kids to, uh, to, the, to do the best you can uh, to make sure that you're aiming for the right target? Or maybe you aimed for the right target early, but in the teenage years, it's become easier to focus on behavior and obedience. Just make sure that you're focused on the most important things within Christianity. Uh, and, and make sure that you're doing what you can, that your kids perceive those things properly and are also pursuing the true things of Christianity, not the counterfeits or the secondary goals. A fourth application is for conservative, evangelical, and uh, churches with Orthodox Christian doctrine. This is a particular problem for them. And again, the sort of people that are listening to this radio show probably uh, are, are going to tend to fit into this. They have a high view of Scripture, going to tend to be conservative, theologically conservative, maybe socially. Uh, and so there's particular concerns that the Church of Ephesus brings to uh, us in these circles. Remember that the church at Ephesus was excellent in dealing with heresy and moral righteousness and integrity. And so, uh, again, that's something that more conservative churches uh, are relatively strong with. Uh, but you've got to have truth with love. And while the uh, relatively liberal churches can be characterized as loving of a sort without truth uh, of a rigorous sort... Uh, conservative churches tend to have the truth part pretty good, but not so good on the love part. And you've got to have both of those. There's a fine line between heresy and ch uh, challenging tradition. Uh, what's, what's the difference there? William Barclay said, it may well be that heresy hunting had killed love and orthodoxy had been achieved at the price of fellowship. When that happens, orthodoxy costs too much. All the orthodoxy in the world will never take the place of love. So don't hear me saying that heresy's fine or heresy, you know, no big deal or, you know, tolerate heresy as long as there's love. That's, no, that's not the point. But the point is that we really need to have both and we can make errors on both sides of the coin here. We can have uh, truth, but without love, we can crush heresy, but along the way crush love. And that's 
not the goal, right? It may not even be an improvement, but it's certainly not the goal. So make sure that you're doing both. I really like what A.W. Tozer says on this uh, as a barometer. He, he says, if the tender yearning is gone from the Advent hope today, there must be a reason for it. One reason is simply that popular fundamentalist theology has emphasized the utility of the cross rather than the beauty of the one who died on it. The saved man's relationship to Christ has been made contractual instead of personal. The work of Christ has been stressed until it has eclipsed the person of Christ. Substitution has been allowed to supersede identification. What he did for me seems to be more important than who he is to me. Redemption is seen as an across-the-counter transaction, which we accept, and the whole thing lacks emotional content. A caricature of this view is what Dallas Willard describes as a barcode faith, right? Where we have certain beliefs, and it's like we get a barcode slapped on our butt, and then we get scanned into heaven if we have the right beliefs. And uh, Willard critiques that at great length. But Tozer's quote is really only a step above that, right? That it recognizes the transactional part of what Christ did for us, but misses the personal and the relational. Who Christ is, is the ultimate. What he did for, for us is, is crucial, but it's based on who he is and what he wants for us and from us. And if we see it as a transaction rather than something with its emotional content, as, as Tozer puts it, right, that's personal, we're missing the boat. Uh, and again, I think conservative evangelical Orthodox churches uh, tend to struggle with this, right? They're going to be strong on the heresy, strong on the having the right beliefs, holding those beliefs, uh, making sure the theology is straight, but it's got to be combined with a sense of who Christ is, how much he loves us, God's grace, and so on. This is a difficult one to have self-awareness on. Again, we tend to focus on our strengths. We think those are the things that are most important. So the things that are uh, lesser, uh, things like love, <laughs> uh, it's going to be harder for us to see that, right? So this is a place where discernment is crucial, where prayer, openness to repentance uh, are, are crucial. This is also one of those cases where uh, a church or individuals within a church may never may, may find it difficult to remember because maybe they never really had this, right? They didn't have this sort of relationship with Christ. But this is what Christ wants for us. And so all I can do uh, to encourage you in those settings uh, is to reflect on who Christ is and what he wants for us, his love and his grace. Uh, it starts with that. Uh, and, if, and if you've never experienced that, uh, pray that you'll find it. If you have experienced it, again, the prescription from verse 5 is to remember, repent, and return to get back on a proper footing as a church for lay people and church leaders uh, to remember where they've been and, and to get back to what really matters. A fifth application is more of a, a mega church, evangelical church sort of problem, and it's an overemphasis on effective programming. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, Let me put it in a nutshell by asking you one question Do you love Jesus Christ? I don't care what your system is, what your denomination is, what your program is, what little set of rules you follow. They will all come to naught if you don't love him. Although some systems are better than others, almost any system will work if you love Christ. And so the more successful programs, uh, programs, churches, tend to emphasize programming. Nothing wrong with programming. Programming's helpful. Programming's fine. But if the programming supersedes God, if it supersedes his love for us, if we think that our earthly plans 
uh, are more important than uh, than his love for us, right? And we would never say that, but in essence, if that's the way we're thinking, if that's our focus, then that's a problem. That's the problem of the church at Ephesus, right? You got, you're doing everything right, but if it's not driven by the proper uh, motives, proper energy, it's going to devolve into trouble. A sixth application is to understand the role of spiritual disciplines within sanctification. A lot of times we think that we just need to do more stuff, And then our first target are spiritual disciplines. I just need to read the Bible more, go to more Bible studies, pray more, fast. I'll I'll, I'll fast. I'll practice silence and solitude. And the focus can be the discipline itself. Uh, Dallas Willard's very helpful on this in a great book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Uh, Richard Foster has the classic book, The Celebration of Disciplines. That's the how to do the disciplines. But Willard's book is arguably more important. In fact, Foster says that he wishes he'd written his friend's book uh, on the how, the why. Why do we do these things? Because if we get the why wrong, the how is not going to matter that much. Why do we do disciplines? Well, we do them so that we can love God and love others more effectively. Disciplines are not the goal, right? Disciplines uh, set up the goal. Disciplines uh, set up uh, or act as the means to the greater end of loving God and loving other people. And so a lot of times we get confused about the role of spiritual disciplines in our life. I'm reminded of the old Keith Green song, the great line where he says, I want your hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. And prayers of ice seems a a little strong, right, for most of us. Uh, But it's just easy to mix mix this up. It's easy to to go with the checkbox approach to Christianity and uh, mistake the role, the real role of, of disciplines in our life. The seventh application is that I want to share is uh, to evangelism, how best to share God. I think a lot of us look at evangelism as a duty, as something that we need to do, and we find it really hard to do it, right? Part of that is just fear or it's lack of technique, etc. But the point I want to make with you here is that evangelism should be something that's pretty natural, right? It's something that should bubble out of us rather than something that should be manufactured. You look at Acts 4, right, where the authorities are telling them not to preach, and they're like, we, we can't help it, right? Or Jeremiah 29, uh, chapter 20, verse 9, it says, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. And, and there's a sense of you just can't help it. So joy and evangelism also serve as barometers of the sort of things we've been talking about today with the church at Ephesus. My pastor in Texas used to use the example of uh, baby pictures as an example, uh, or pictures of your fiance, right? Uh, that, you know, someone asks about those things. You don't need uh, a class on how to share photos of your baby, right? You don't need a class on talking excitedly about your fiance. That just happens. It happens naturally. And so why? Well, we have this enthusiasm. We have this fire to share something great in our lives. And so if that's not the way we talk about God or think about God or communicate these things, if there's not that fire, then we're missing something. And we're missing something along the lines of what the church at Ephesus is talking about. We're doing all the right stuff, but that first love is missing. If we have a first love along the lines of what's being talked about here, then evangelism is a natural bubbling out. Sure, there's a role for technique and tact and all that, but at at its root, it should be something that that fires out of us naturally rather than something that we have to contrive and manufacture. Lord, there's so much here in this passage, great passage, and then terrific applications 
uh, for us about our, the churches we have, our marriages, our parenting, the way we do evangelism, the way we do spiritual disciplines. Lord, whatever the word is that you want each person listening to this to, to catch and to, to root in their hearts, Lord, I pray that it would do that. We want deep and abiding relationship with you. We don't want to miss um, relationship with you for obedience and things that are, in fact, secondary. Lord, thank you for the church at Ephesus and what it teaches us. We pray that it, we would apply it in the days to come. It's been great to be with you this week. Um, again, find, find me on Facebook, SoundCloud for previous uh, episodes. And uh, we hope you'll join us next week on The Word Diet. Responsible, credible, pure radio, 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2.